0: guys, and welcome back to the Unison Church Podcast. It's been a little longer than it usually is between episodes, just because I've been working really hard to get Unison Studios, which is a a music and podcasting and teaching studio that I am uh, in the process of doing construction on. So I'm doing all the work myself, so it's like a lot of work. So I've been spending a lot of my time on that, uh, but we should be getting onto a more regular regular podcast uh, schedule here. What you're about to hear, this is not something I usually do, so since doing the podcast, I've preached a bunch at my church, and um, I don't usually share the sermons here, but I thought this one would be a good one to share. So what you're going to hear in a couple minutes is a recording of a sermon that I did on Sunday, January 28th, 2024, at my church, Pond Hill, in North Haven, and I just want to give a quick introduction to it. So we just got finished doing this uh, sermon series on generosity in the month of january and this sermon is kind of like a the start of a two-parter so there's this part there's another part coming uh, which will be posted soon and um this first one talks about basically both services are talking about the meaning of work like the answering the question of like why do we even work to make money in the first place um and so that's um kind of like a companion to our series on generosity which was obviously about more than just money but i think a lot of people that's where they go so as somebody that works a whole lot um like 80-ish hours a week often i um i want to know why is it that i work and i think it's actually very the there there's a very biblical theology of working and that's kind of what we're exploring in this series I set out to kind of do the Old Testament's vision and the New Testament's vision, but narrowing that down, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of content in the Bible about working and why we do that and what it means to work in a godly way, um, which people use that phrase, but they don't ever really define it. So what I did was I went all the way to the beginning and I talked about Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of humankind, uh, what, what exactly is going on there, and um, we talk about that in the series. Next week, we'll be talking about new testament vision of work and uh, i'll save that for next week but so today here uh, here is uh, our guest which is me uh preaching this sermon um entitled the theology of work the beginning Talking about uh, the path to prosperity. The last, the last um, has it been like a month? I think it's been a whole month at this point. Um, we are on. Um, is this week five? This is the fifth Sunday, right? This is a five Sunday month. That's an awesome one. Awesome, cool. Yeah. So we are on week five of the series, and we're gonna kind of be in the same place, but also kind of take it to somewhere new this morning. And so I'm excited. ...that you guys uh, chose to be here, that you joined us. We've primarily been talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 9... ...and that's really what's going to change... ...is we're going to go somewhere else to talk about this. And uh, to cap this series on generosity... ...I decided what I wanted to do was uh, talk about some theology with you. And, uh, you know, generosity is a lot more than just what we do with our money... ...with our finances. But I think a lot of times when we talk about generosity... Most of us go to a financial state of mind. We're thinking about money. And say, the same is true of prosperity, which is unfortunate because biblical prosperity is about much more than just money. But, um, but a lot of us are thinking about that. And so I myself can't help thinking when I think about generosity, when I think about prosperity, the money making process. Okay, the money making process. So we, uh, what I'm talking about there is like what most of us spend all day doing, which is working a job, making money doing that kind of thing. I think that has a lot to do with um, this conversation. So I figured what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at that. So let me first do an illustration, all right? If you have to work later today after church, raise your hand. How many of us? That's a a decent amount of us. Okay. All right, cool. Great. Okay. How many of you guys worked um, at least four days this week, or maybe let's say three and a half, at least three and a half days. Raise your hand if you worked at least three and a half days this week. Okay, so maybe most of us are there. Wow, even Michael worked three and a half days this week. Let's go. <laughs> Look at this. That's great. That's awesome. Okay, anybody work seven worked seven days this week? Who works seven days this week? I work seven days this week. Yeah, kids count. Kids absolutely count. Yeah, seven days a week. Let's go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, hopefully those of us that work seven days this week had a, a little chance to rest in in between that. But that's a different sermon for another day, right? So the point of this exercise is just to illustrate like how much time most of us are spending in the money making process. Like we're spending a lot of that, and uh, maybe maybe what you're doing with your money after you make it is uh, is good, and you're practicing biblical stewardship, and you're you're giving to the poor, and you are managing your money well, and you are giving to the church, and you're doing all these things that the Bible calls us to, um, I'm not saying that work is a bad thing. In fact, in a second, I'm going to say the total opposite of that. But um, what I want to say right off the bat before we jump into that is that not all jobs make money. Uh, so there's one, the type of work that we're talking about today is not just like a career. Um, it's any type of So that goes for people that are unemployed or disabled or retired or students or homemakers or whatever it is that you do on a regular basis that's like productive activity. That's what we're talking about. Um, So nobody is off the hook. So if you're retired, don't tune out on me. If you're like a stay-at-home parent, don't tune out on me either. The type of work we're talking about, it's not just the money-making kind. It's all of the productive activity that we all take place in. Um, in fact, every single person, what we're going to talk about this, this is for you, the type of work that we're talking about. This is for every person in the building right now. So, uh, I will make the argument that all of us are called to work. Like it's a spiritual calling that we have to work. And you may say, where is that in the Bible? Maybe you've never heard something like that said before, but let me take it one step even further before we, before we turn to scripture, intrinsic to the purpose of humans, is work, like it's what we were made for to do, you know. And if you're if you're a parent, you're especially keen on this fact because you may hear your kids ask 35 times a day the question, the ultimate question, why. That's the ultimate question, right? Why? How come? Why? Uh, we have uh, we have this this intrinsic um, thing that everybody is born with that asks that question. Why? And what I'm suggesting is that work is at least in part an answer to that why question. And uh, just because your kids stop asking that question, you know, 35 times a day in that way doesn't mean that they stop thinking about it. And in fact, I think well into adulthood, we're all thinking about these questions. I feel like every day I ask that question, man, why, why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? Why am I here? Why in the world is thing, are things this way? You know, all, the, all those questions, those don't go away. They're intrinsic to Humanity. And um, the best place, I think, or at least the first place we should go when we ask those questions is the very beginning of the Bible. The very first opening chapters of the Bible um, are a great place to turn when you find yourself haunted by the question, why? Um, and so let me give you a few caveats before we jump in, um, because Genesis is it's a, it's a, it kind of a weird passage of the Bible. Um, And so I want to say the first two, maybe three chapters of the Bible are, in my opinion, the two most important chapters in the totality of Scripture. Because they set the scene for everything that's going to happen later. And they say so many things about our God, and they give us a lot of information about ourselves, why we're here, things like that. So my first thought on Genesis is if you've never read Genesis, we are not going to read the whole thing this morning. And so please educate yourself. Read, read Genesis 1 and 2 if you've never read it. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, beautiful, beautiful passages of the scripture. And uh, we're going to talk about a very small selection from both Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. So I would invite you to read it on your own. And uh, also, with that comes this, this you will receive this sermon best if you have a copy of the scripture open that you can look at. Okay? Um, it could even be on your phone, but, but a physical copy would be even better. Like if you're looking at. A Bible, that's probably where, where the best place you could be for this reading, because we're going to jump around a little bit. Second thought on Genesis is it's, a, it's weird. It's really weird. If you read it, it's weird. Um, it's a little confusing sometimes. And uh, you know, every origin story that you could think of, because Genesis tells the story of where we came from in the beginning, like many years ago, right, how life started if you read any account of origin, whether it's uh, this one, whether it's one from ancient myth, whether it's one from science, every origin story is weird, okay? Um, I think sometimes there was, this, there was this movement, I think thankfully at this point it's kind of passed, passed on now, but when I was a kid this movement was very popular, and it was to uh, downplay the Bible's account of origin and say that it sounded crazy and outlandish and that's wild and then set up um, what is the traditional like scientific view um, as like the opposition to that, and claim that this is natural and normal. And uh, let me tell you, if you read a naturalist's account of the beginnings of origin stories, it's just as weird as if you were reading Genesis. They're all weird. In fact, there's one of my favorite comedians ever, his name's Pete Holmes. Is, he's so funny, and he does this bit about... Whether you're like an atheist that believes that like the universe spawned out of nothingness, or whether you're um, a theist, which is somebody that believes in God, that He created, and He tells the story, He's like, "There's only two kinds of people, and uh, one of you believes in this thing, and He explains it in like a very funny way, and one of you believes in this thing, and He explains it in a very funny way, and uh, both of them are super weird, and I think he's right. I actually think that's good, good theology. Origin stories are weird because they're kind of like beyond our categories." For thinking, right? Because they happen beyond us. It's hard to even imagine them. So, um, so keep that in mind. Just reading Genesis, kind of weird book. All right. Thirdly, before you study any scripture, and this is true of anything ever, you need to pay attention to what the scripture is trying to accomplish. A lot of times, we come to these stories and we read them, and we bring in our body of truth and knowledge, and we try to jam it into the scripture. And not always is the scripture trying to accomplish what we want to accomplish in reading it, okay? So a lot of us want to say, like, how exactly was man created? Like, how did the atoms come to get together, and how did, you know, scientifically what happened, and exactly how long did it take? Genesis is not trying to answer those kinds of questions, okay? Genesis is trying to get at something deeper. So what you need to do is ask, what is Genesis trying to get me to believe and to understand as I'm reading it. And so you have to ask those kinds of questions. Take the scripture on its own terms. The primary aim of Genesis, I'm going to tell it to you right now, the primary aim of Genesis is to set up Yahweh as God, not only in Israel, but as God to the entire universe. To describe this God who is vastly different than any other nation's gods, this God is a lot bigger than just ancient Israel. But if you go back and you read about ancient Israel, who would have been the first recipients of this, this text, they were surrounded by nations who had their own gods. And you had this God who was the God of Babylon, and you had this God who was the God of Assyria, and those gods ruled over their territory, and they were going to come in, and they were going to take over your territory. That was the idea. But Yahweh, the one that's presented in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is not a God of just Israel's territory. He is a God of the whole universe. And he's the one that started it all, and he's sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over the chaotic sea. And uh, this is huge, because none of the other gods of ancient times, if you read their myths, they, 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 were never, quite, they never quite got the sea under control. But, got, but our God is the one who made the sea. Um, he's sovereign over the sky, and he's sovereign over every square inch of the earth. Basically, he's sovereign over all of creation. That's what that means. On top of that, Yahweh is loving, he's generous, he even provides water for the flowers. He provides life wherever it's found, and he desires community with his creation, which is one of the reasons he makes humans, which we're going to get, get into in a second. So painting this picture of God, that's the primary thing that Genesis is doing. In fact, that's kind of what the whole Bible does. Uh, but, but especially in Genesis, we're painting a picture of the creator God. With that said, Genesis, especially 1 and 2, are also about the creation of humans, and why we're here, and what our, what our initial purpose is. And so that is also what Genesis is dealing with. That's what we're going to deal with this morning. Uh, but like I said, it's primarily about God, but what we see God doing is making these human beings, and uh, he gives them a purpose. So I'm going to tell you right off the bat what purpose we find for ourselves in Genesis. Now, I'm not saying this is a holistic statement, but this is our original purpose. Here it is. Our original purpose was to be God's partners in the ongoing work of creation. Our original purpose was to be God's partners in the ongoing work of creation. So to see this, we need to go to the most central part of the book, the whole book, which is found right in the first chapter. Um, I found one quote from this commentator in the Holman Bible Handbook. It says, The theme of Genesis centers around the first utterance of God to man and woman recorded in the sacred text, namely Genesis 1, to 28. It's the very first time that God speaks to humans. And also creation itself. It's found in this short three-verse passage in Genesis one26 26 26-28. So go ahead and flip your page. You don't have to flip very far. It's right at the beginning. Genesis one26 26 26-28, it says this, And God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea or the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, you guys ready to get nerdy this morning? Who's ready to get nerdy? We're about to get nerdy about Genesis, okay? Genesis is one of those things, man, I could study this book for like the rest of my life, because every time I go back to it, there's more and more stuff. And... Um, There's a lot of meaning making going on in here. What I mean by meaning-making is like human beings are people that seek some bigger meaning for what they're doing. They can't just do road like an ant can carry food, ant doesn't care why it's carrying food. But if we go to the store and we buy stuff and we come, we have to have a purpose for what we're doing. Like we have to think there's some kind of bigger story that we're involved in here. It's just innate to humans. We're meaning-making creatures. And there's a lot of meaning-making here. In Genesis, every one of these verses is packed with detail. so we're going to walk through it slowly together. Genesis 1.26 says again, And God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this verse holds a description of what mankind actually is. As Yahweh's sort of reasoning within himself to say, hey, let's create some humans. He's given... Three descriptors. Okay. And as you study a scripture, you notice more and more the care with which the Bible is written. Like it's very, very intentional. Um, every word is placed exactly where it should be. Um, and that is, uh, that is poignant, I think, in this verse because the order, I think, kind of matters to this. So the first thing that we see is what theologians call the Imago Dei. And I don't know why they say this, this is a Latin word. The text is written in Hebrew. So I think it should be called the Hebrew word with its Salaam Elohim which means the image of God. This is the first thing we learn about humankind, that we are in God's image. And when you read that we're in God's image, you might think, oh, we kind of look like God, but that's actually not what the image of God means. It doesn't actually have anything to do with what we look like necessarily. What it means, uh, the word image, it means something like idol or, um, idol or inscription. So think about this almost like a, like a statue would be, would be made. And if you think, uh, think of like a penny for us, that's an inscription, right? penny, it's got Abe Lincoln's face on it. That penny is not literally Abraham Lincoln, obviously, right? It's got, uh, I should have brought a penny with me, I don't have a penny. But uh, it's got Abraham's face on it. What that means is it's, it's a stand-in for the authority that the government has to say that you can use that penny to buy and sell things in America. And that's why Abraham Lincoln's face is on it. That's why one of our presidents of of times past is on the penny. The inscription stands for the authority that the government has to say that the penny can and cannot be, or can be used in in commerce. And so when we see that we are the image of God, what it is, it's an authoritative statement. It says, these people, these humankind, these people are in my image, they carry my authority in this place. That's what the image of God uh, means. And so uh, this is super cool because we're going to keep getting language like this. Let me read one theologian's um, uh, way of putting it from the uh, Commentary and Critical Explanatory on the Whole Bible. Very roll-off-the-tongue title there for this work. It says this, The formation of a creature who was to be God's representative, clothed with authority and rule as visible head and monarch of the world. This was the original design for humans. Is the first thing we're called is the authority of God to do things on His behalf in creation here. And uh, what a what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing to say first about your creation. What an honor to be in the image of God. This also says uh, that we are of value. That humankind's we have value. And uh, it's sort of the basis for all the do-not-murder commands in Genesis, of which there are many. It's actually a theme in Genesis. It's a repeating theme that should should draw your attention back to this moment every time you read it in Genesis and Exodus 2, I suppose. But this idea of you can't kill other humans because they're in the image of God. They have value intrinsic because of their God-bearing image. Now, what we might normally think of image is actually the second thing that God says. It says, after our likeness. And this is more, like I said, along with kind of what we might think about when we think of of, uh, image. There's something about humans that looks like resembles Yahweh. And I don't know what it is. And I don't think anybody else knows what it is either. Some people have said, oh, it's because they have souls. Some people have said, oh, it's because they have uh, reasoning and intelligence. Um, We're not really sure uh, what exactly this means. But something about humankind resembles our creator in a way that uh, is not found elsewhere in creation. Again, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. All I can say is, like, what an honor to bear this uh, like-God status that we have as human beings. What a blessing it is to be given this by the Creator. I think it's something that we should think about more often. Like, wow, God created me, and I kind of look like Him in some way. Um, that's, that's, that's wild. What an opportunity to practice biblical stewardship over a gift that God has given to us. Um, all right, three, let them have dominion. This word, dominion, is a tough word. It's hard. Uh, theologians don't, they don't understand why this word is used exactly. Um, the, the Hebrew word is radah, and uh, it, we're not, yeah, we don't know why, because radah is, um, it's like a very, mean is not the right word, heavy-handed word. Let's do that. It's a very heavy-handed word word to use here. This kind of ruling, having dominion, it might be somewhat close to like subjugate. It's like an aggressive word, Uh, more aggressive than we're comfortable with generally when we look at the the passage. We could spend like a whole sermon series talking about um, what exactly this means, but I I think I'll, I'll just share what I think it means and why such a strong word is used. I think that the whole creation narratives, all of Genesis like 1 and 2, is a response to this statement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which says this, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So in the very initial step of creation, there's this, uh, this dark void. Um, the, it's not formed. And what you have to read into that is that it's, it's worthless. It's good for nothing. It's uh, not life-supporting. And so, as uh, the scripture draws attention to this, this is after God, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth were formless and void in Genesis 1 2. And uh, this is like a moral thing. Like, Israelites reading this, they're going to be like upset by that. Like, what a shame that the earth is not life giving at the pants. Now, we'll talk about this in a second. But uh, as God continues the creating process, he calls everything good. And he's, like, happy with it. And by day seven, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I can rest. And he's, he's done with what he was doing, okay? But just because, God, uh, just because the Scripture says that God was done on day seven, and this is um, Genesis 2, verse 1, if you want to take a look at it, just because the Scripture says God was done in verse 7 does not mean that creation is all the way finished yet. And uh, this is really um, this is really important because this is exactly why God says what He says about the human. Because creation is not all the way finished yet. There's still work to be done in creation. There's still formlessness and voidness in creation somewhere. Okay, God only makes Eden a garden in a specific place. So that means the rest of the world is kind of still in this like formlessness. Um, and uh, less so than when we began, but still, there's work to be done, and the human is, uh, is called to do it. And that's why I think God uses such an, a heavy-handed word to describe the humans having dominion, because let's be real, as we live our lives, we encounter disorganization, and we encounter chaos in some way. And we are handed a task, and the task is not done yet, and now we have to do it, and we have to somewhat, somehow scrape together the resources that we have and make something of that. And I think that's the dominion process, is the, the squashing of the chaos that's still in the world, and even was back in this time, uh, pre-Genesis 3. And so God's mandate to the humans in Genesis 128, which we're going to read, I think is evidence that there's something out there that needs to be subdued, and that's why we have dominion. In fact, I think this is our original purpose. Once again, our original purpose was to be God's partners in the ongoing work of creation. So let's move on. Let's go to the next verse. Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. This one is quick and easy. Well, it's quick and easy for our conversation today. It's actually very complicated <laughs> in other conversations. But in this conversation today, very easy. Here's what it means when God speaks to humankind in Genesis 1.26 and 28. Both men and women are present. Both of them are equally receiving this mandate. And it's important for both men and women to exercise all of the things that are listed in verse 28. It's very important. The first time we see humans, there's both male and female. We don't get the weird uh, order of male and female until Genesis chapter 2. And so Genesis chapter 1, when we're dealing with it here, we've got to understand that when God speaks to humans, he's speaking to the male ones and the female ones. And uh, that's very important and not to be missed as sometimes it is. So here's what he says in Genesis 1.28 to man and woman after he makes them. He says this, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, every living thing that moves upon the earth. Yeah. So, okay. So again, he's given like a list of things and there's five things here, but two of them go together. So we're only going to do four. The first one is when God says, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. That's actually a quote. He said that before. In Genesis so far, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, uh, he says this to the sea animals and the sky animals. So this be fruitful and multiply is not a unique command that's given to humans. So it's not as important for our conversation today. Again, it's important, but not for us today. So to be fruitful and multiply, I've always said that fruitfulness means more than just making babies. Um, I've always made that argument. And uh, I still sort of stand by that, because why would there be two words that mean the same thing? Uh, when there's only one word for everything else, it's kind of weird. So there's some somewhere in fruitfulness and multiplication, there's like something special going on. But we're not going to talk about that right now more than we already have, because the next word in the sentence is the word replenish. Replenish. The Hebrew word here is malay. The word actually has priestly connotations. So uh, it's used in a lot of like the priest dialogue. It's like like the priest doing something. This word is often translated that way. In other places where it's translated as replenish, because it's translated other words too, like consecrate or fill or accomplish. But when it's translated replenish, it means like to bring something good to that. Um, And it's oftentimes like growing in strength or bringing aid to something or uh, increasing something in glory somehow. And so as we see God calling the human to replenish the earth, we see very much that God's design is that humankind would bring goodness to the earth. That, that they would bring the earth to its fullest God-given potential. Because God has provided the materials for humankind to build all sorts of things. And like I said, he built the Eden Garden, which we'll get to in a second, uh, but he only built it in one place. The humans are supposed to go forth and they're supposed to build it everywhere else. And um, that is kind of this idea of replenishing the earth, bringing the fullest potential out of what God has created. Again, what an opportunity to practice biblical stewardship like we've been talking about with this goal. We've been given the earth and we have a responsibility to steward it well, just like we've been talking about. What a beautiful opportunity. Okay, then he gets into this word subdue. Subdue in Hebrew, kavash. Uh, again, a very like heavy-handed word. In fact, more heavy-handed than the last. And um, as humans... Again, we'll kind of get into the same thing. We have this mandate to take our little slice of chaos, right, our uncultivated land, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, and we're we're called to kavash it, to force it into something better. And I don't know about you, some some you know, a lot of you guys have jobs, a lot of you guys raise kids, a lot of you guys do other things with your time that are productive in nature, right? I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but when you go to do something productive, it seems like the unproductivity is like fighting against you. You know what I'm talking about? Like it doesn't want to, like the chaos does not want to be molded into order. You know what I mean? Uh, it wants to stay chaos. And that's like scientific actually now um, that things tend towards chaos, not order. So and we as human beings are called to sometimes force things into order. And there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. And the rest of Genesis is all about right and wrong ways to do it. And so uh, I would encourage you to you know, read some of those examples so that we don't get caught up in doing it the wrong way, as many have. I'm sure that we can think about many examples in our culture of people doing this type of thing the wrong way, having poor use of authority and wastefulness and their materials and their resources and all that. It's not hard to think of those examples. So there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do this, but sometimes you get your hands dirty and you have to get into the chaos and you've got to force it to become something. And that, I think, is what, is what we're, we're getting at when we talk about subdue here. Like a potter in clay, forcing that lump of clay into uh, a nice jar or a vase or something. Sometimes you've got to put a little muscle into that. And that's kind of what I think subdue is getting out here. And then we have, again, the dominion word, which we already talked about, radah. And this is the same word we saw in verse 26, so I won't spend too much time. But I want to remind you of the responsibility that God has given to humans to become his partners. So he's calling us to rule over creation and continue his creative work. And we are to do this authoritatively, but once again, in a godly way, not abusing that kind of authority. And uh, once again, I think we can think of uh, lots of examples of what that looks like when we abuse our authority. But we're called to replenish the earth as we're also subduing it. And so think about bringing goodness while squashing chaos. Uh, that's that's my, best, my best attempt at making these words English. All right, so one thing that a lot of people don't know about Genesis is that there's actually two different stories of the creation of the world. Um, we like to think of books as uh, you, go, you go from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Chapter 2 happens chronologically after chapter 1. It's not how Genesis is written. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, begins a second account of creation. It happens at the same time as uh, the first one, and it's just a different perspective. And so uh, read, read this different perspective on the creation of the world. Genesis 2, 4-8 through 8 says this, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Wow, it even says that it's like, it explains to you what it's doing. It's great. Verse 5, And every plant of the field before it was earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There was not a man to till the ground, There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Following these verses is a big description of Eden, which is awesome, but not relevant for our conversation today. So we're going to skip over it. We're going to go right to verse 15. Here's what it says in verse 15. This is probably the most obviously clear example of our main point today. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. As pretty, as pretty black and white there. So, so God's goal for the man in this moment is that he would be in the garden, he would tend it, and he would keep it. That sounds an awful lot like a vocation to me. Sounds a lot like God just gave him a job and said, you are a farmer now. Enjoy. And uh, he did. And he did enjoy. Um, our original purpose was to be God's partners in the ongoing work of creation. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go through, we're not going to go through every verse like we just did, because there's one verse in particular that really caught me by surprise this week for as many times as I've read it before it it had new light for me this week. Genesis two verse five says this, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no man to till the ground. There's a pivotal word in this verse, and uh, in the King James that I just read, it's translated as before. I want you to listen to another translation, just because I think it highlights this word a little bit more. So um, this is the CSB. It says this, No shrub in the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. In this version, that word before is translated not yet uh, as well. It's the Hebrew word tareb. And it's uh, what this verse hangs on. It's like the pivot point of this verse. It says, in parallel to Genesis 1 and uh, 2's uh, formless and void statement, this is exactly what it says. It basically says the land is worthless for two reasons. One, the Lord had not made it rain. And two, there was no man to till the ground. Um, There's a two-part problem presented in this verse. The the problem is every plant of the field had not yet grown in the earth, right? It was before it had grown. And every herb of the field, it had not yet grown. It was before that it had grew. So the idea is that these things, plants of the field and herbs, this is how ancient people lived. This is their life-giving source, right? That you gotta grow something in the ground and you gotta eat it so that you don't die of hunger. That's kind of the idea here. And the, the scripture says, there was no food to eat because there was no herb of the field yet and there was no plant of the field yet. That's the idea. So there's no life-giving stuff in Genesis 2-5. The earth is formless and void. It's a parallel scripture with that. But here's the thing. There's a two-part problem. There's two reasons why this have, hasn't happened. Two, if these two things get fixed, this is the solution. The two things that are missing is the Lord God had not made it rain yet. There ain't no water to grow the plants, right? And there was no man to till the ground. The two-part problem required a two-part solution. Now, of course, God could have just snapped his fingers and made plants appear. But in God's created order, this is the solution to the earth giving what we need to live. It is that God provides the rain and that man works the ground. And uh, we see, interestingly, that both of these solutions come from the ground in the following verses. It's really, really cool. Uh, Genesis 2.6, it says this, There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And then in Genesis 2, 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we got our two solutions. From the ground, God brings both solutions to the problem. He says, I will water from the ground, and I will create mankind from the ground. It was always supposed to be a partnership, this design for bringing life out of this creation, even before Genesis 3 when we messed it up. The design was that God and humankind would work together in conjunction to bring life out of this planet. Our original purpose was to be God's partners in this ongoing work of creation. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every form of work is healthy. There's a godly way to work, right? To set boundaries and to bribe for your family, to make money. And there's not so godly ways to work. And I think we can pick those out in our society today. But what I am saying is that working is intrinsic to who we are as human beings. This is the first thing that God says about us, is that He is creating us to be His partners in the work of creation. And so it's intrinsic to who we are. And again, this doesn't mean having a career or making money. It's not exactly that. It's doing the creative work of things like having a career and making money, or parenting your children, or uh, cultivating your home, or volunteering, or volunteering or serving at church. All these types of productive activities are all the work that God uh, invented for us to do. And so you can't retire from this kind of work, okay? You can't, you can't stay home from this kind of work. This is, this is stuff that we are called to do as humans. It's who we are. We're all designed to do these things. And so um, we are to continue the work of creation in whatever sphere we have. So we've been doing a lot of theology. What I want to do to wrap things up is I want to ask a couple questions, and I want you guys to think about it, okay? So I want you to think about these things as I do it. I'm going to kind of chew on them a little bit, but I want you guys to be thinking about these things, because these are questions for you. That's why they're in the first person. All right, here's the first one. Is my job creational? What do I mean by creational? Well, I mean in line with God's created order, like is your job adding something to the world? Is it benefiting other people's lives? Does it add truth, goodness, and beauty, as many... um, many uh, people have said over the years is the created order truth goodness and beauty is it in line with yahweh's character here's a big one that we forget about sometimes does it help or harm creation is it like okay for the environment what you do um that's something that's really important because if we are called to 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 tend the garden right to um, take care of this place then we have responsibility to take care of this place Uh, I'm not trying to cause somebody's midlife or quarter life or three-quarter life crisis right now. That's not what I'm trying to do. But if your job does not answer these questions well, it might be time to look for another job. Seriously. I mean, if this is like intrinsic to who we are as the human race, then we really should be working somewhere where we're adding to not subtracting from and uh, where we're honoring the Lord with what we're doing. I think that's a huge thing. Um, okay, here's another one. Do I treat my job as sacred? Do I treat my job as sacred? For a lot of people, their you know professional sphere or whatever is kept very separate from their religious sphere, which like sounds like a swear word coming off of my tongue to say it like that, but it just is. Perhaps you're um, maybe a totally different person at work. Like when you're at work, you say and do things that you would never do um, here with your family or whatever. This sort of divide that we often have is a result of really poor theology or at least like failure to think about good theology because if it's true that Jesus is with us wherever we go and if it's true that we worship God not with songs, not only with songs on Sunday morning or giving or other spiritual disciplines and if it's true that working is part of our original created purpose then our work is sacred and we should treat it that way. What we do professionally matters a whole lot not only to us and to our families but to God as well. And so uh, the way we do it also matters a lot, not just to me, not just to my family, but to God as well. And so um, we should be treating our jobs as sacred. And is this how you think about your job? Good question to think about. Here's another one. Am I neglecting my purpose by avoiding work? If work is intrinsic to who we are as humans, are we doing it? Like I said, it doesn't mean having a career necessarily, are we finding ways to be productive with our life? I've noticed that there's often a propensity towards laziness in our culture. Has anybody else noticed this propensity towards laziness in our culture? Okay, a lot of people, you know, they get to their desk at work, and they'll blow like three hours of their day on social media. And uh, I don't know, that doesn't look like work. Some of this, this is just poor management. Sometimes this is because the structure is not good, and we're not getting things done. That's, that's one thing. But for a lot of people, I think it's... Um, just people's lack of drive to work. So I remember a lot, again, something that was really big in conversation that people aren't talking about as much now, because now we get to make fun of Gen Z instead of millennials. But um, <clears throat> there was a time when people were talking about how millennials were staying with their parents longer than the previous generation. Have you guys heard these conversations? Do you remember these like five or ten years ago? Um, and I'm a millennial, so I remember receiving some of these conversations. Um, but uh, yeah, that millennials were like staying with their parents, they were living with their parents until they were like 30 or so. Um, and, or, or even longer. And um, the idea was that um, that's later than the previous generation had lived with their parents. That, that was the idea. And, and part of the thing was that millennials weren't going out and getting jobs that were good enough to sustain themselves. That was like part of the, the, the research or whatever. Uh, y- another part of the research is the insane inflation of cost of living that is like wild, but we won't talk about that right now. Um, anyway. So, some would rather leech off of others and uh, other than work. And um, this is again contrary to our created order. Um, we're humans who are called by God to work, to continue the creation process. And that might look different for all of us, but that includes people in their 20s, just like it includes people in their 80s. Um, all of it is involved. You never get to opt out of this thing, nobody gets to take it over for you. We are all called to be productive in the ongoing work of creation. Okay, last one. This is a big one, big one. Do I recognize my job as a gift from God? Do I recognize my job as a gift from God? If you've ever been unemployed, but looking for a job, you know what I'm talking about? Like unemployed, but you're looking for a job. It's not because you're sitting at home doing nothing. It's because you're actually looking for a job. If you've ever been unemployed in that situation, you are probably more likely to understand this than than some of us others. Um, Because man, it is hard to be looking for a job and not be able to get one. And um, we need to, those of us that do have jobs, uh, we need to recognize our jobs as a gift from God. And that includes, like I said, the non-career things as well. When, when your kid is throwing a tantrum, it's hard to think about your job as a gift from God. I don't have kids, but I've watched a whole lot of teenagers over my life, and uh, sometimes they throw tantrums too. And it's tough sometimes to think about your job as a gift from God in those moments, okay? Um, but, but that's okay. That's all right. You know? It is a gift from God. It's more than just making money. Um, we've been talking a whole lot about stewardship. And um, stewardship is not just about the money that you make at your job. It's also about the job itself. So how do we steward this gift that God has given us, this vocation that we have in life? How do we steward that well? How do we do it in a way that's honoring to God? And this one's hard. It's, it is tough. But how do we go into a busy day's work or go into some of those bad situations where you know, we're leading at home or we're leading in a, in a meeting or we're leading in a, in a confrontation that has to happen between two employees or whatever. You know, how do we approach that with an attitude of thankfulness to God for the fact that He has given us this opportunity not just to make money, but to fulfill our God-given purpose that we were created with. So how do we approach our job with that kind of mindset? I think that's what God is uh, what calling us to, is to have an attitude of thanksgiving at all times, when we're volunteering, when we're giving, when we're dealing with kids, when we're dealing with teenagers, when we're dealing with young adults, when we're dealing with our, our in-laws, like all that stuff, taking those like, opportunities for uh, creative activity and being thankful to God for them. It's tough to do. It really is. Um, But they're a beautiful opportunity to live out God's design, which is this. Our original purpose was to be God's partners in his ongoing work of creation. What a gift it is to be God's partner in creation. You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.